I just want to give one more shout out to my buddies over at the Outhouse Podcast, Matt and Aaron doing the Lord's work of giving people an opportunity to share their coming out stories. This week's episode is a doozy. There's tears. There's a lot of laughter. Uh, they have uh, you know, multiple guests on. This is kind of a two-parter. Uh, it's, it's really, really good. I, I recommend if you are looking for a place to start, this is a great one. Where you really run the whole gamut of emotions. really learn a lot about what they're trying to do. Check them out on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, I guess now. Can't get used to that. Um, the Outhouse Podcast. Uh, outhouse broken up. You know, different words. Uh, outhouse podcast on all social media uh, you can find them out there they are a lot of fun daniel vivanco was my guest this week daniel is a filmmaker cinematographer musician audiovisual engineer editor really really is new meaning to the words jack of all trades um well, i guess not new meaning because that is literally the definition of it but uh he really has a lot of awesome experience in a lot of different fields especially when it comes to the technical side of things so i was really glad to, to meet him recently uh, on a short uh, film project i was working with um so uh, we sat down and we talked a little bit about what he does to kind of help other artists translate their vision and introduce them to new tools of the trade that can really open up some awesome opportunities. So I, if you're interested in how the use of technology plays out with, with the arts, then you're going to like this one a lot. So sit back and relax and enjoy Daniel Vivanco. Starving Artist Phoenix. I'm Tony Machete. I got Daniel Vavanko on with me today. How are you doing? Good, good. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks for doing it. Um, so I am really glad you agreed to do this because I have been trying to get somebody who's a little bit more, I guess you call on the technical side of things um, when it comes to, to film and stuff for a while. Um, and so you were a DPing, this like, short little shoot I was helping out with, kind of a PA on. Um, I really was fascinated by everything you were doing with it. So cool. tell me a little bit about how did you get into that side of things? So the funny part about it is nobody would think that I end up as a cinematographer, director mm-hmm. of photography, or anything technical in this yeah. in this way. Uh, going back to when I first started in bands, I started in rock bands. Soul Pilot, right? Well, that was my third band. Oh, shit. Okay. Yeah. yeah, no, I actually started really early on at the age of 14. I had my first band, and I was like a little manager, and I kind of called it Modesty, and I kind of yell at my friends when they didn't show up on time and get everything kind of rolling and try to get everybody serious about it and say, hey, dude, we're going to do this for serious. Come on, man. You know, <laughs> rock and roll, baby. And, you know, it, it went on for a while. We went through high school through the whole thing, played a lot of gigs, went across the border to Mexican side, and we actually had our guitar player's mother who was an import-export, so she would help us. Um, his name is Mauricio Moody's. And lives in Nogales, I believe, or Tucson. I haven't kept up with him in the years, but uh, we were actually in Nogales, Arizona, which is a border uh, on the on the border of Arizona, south south Arizona, southern Arizona. No kidding, I'm from Sierra Vista. No way. Yeah. Oh wow. I okay. know. I, uh, hmm. Small world. So yeah, uh, we were doing a lot of that stuff. She'd help out with the paperwork, go back and forth, and at some point, I realized in a little early in high school, maybe freshman sophomore year, that I had to start 
you know, recording us. Um, maybe a little earlier than that, and because we had an eight track by freshman year. Now that I think about it, so started with a four track tape, cassette tape, and went into an eight track digital, and then started moving up to the twenty four track digital. And I realized, okay, now I know how to engineer um, at the basic cellular level, yeah. if you will, or as an artist. So how do I take it up a notch? Well, we got to get a little bit better. We got to plug some more gear in, and, and we started thinking what we could do. But we were already sounding decent, uh, especially at the time. And you're talking about late 1998, and you know into the 2000s. Uh, that was probably senior year. Um, so by then we had kind of perfected it. But I had realized early on that I needed to learn photography. I needed to learn how to build websites. I needed to learn how to connect and network people. So this is all from like a marketing standpoint for yourself, mm-hmm. basically. Yeah. I'm basically thinking, how do I... It, it was as simple as this. How do I create an awesome-looking CD jacket that smells <laughs> just as good as the albums that I buy and has like that epic feeling of like I'm actually listening to something almost as if it was delivered to me from their hands. You know, like it went it traded off hands. And that was that ethereal feeling of when CDs were still a thing or even cassette tapes back in the day. And you'd open it up and it'd smell that paper, that certain type of paper, that feeling of what it was. And then get to, you know, listen to the album and that smell always stays in my I have a very, very heightened sense of, uh, of memory and smell. So, you know, once I realized I needed to learn photography, once I realized I needed to do graphic design, I needed to uh, learn how to do website design, and I needed to also incorporate video. Then it started getting serious because, man, for me at that time, getting a, a little video camera was kind of like, oh boy. So I started working with my father early on. People used to make fun of me and think that, uh, you know, that the, the parents were like, oh, you know, you're you're too young to be working. I'm like, hell no, I got plans, you know. <laughs> so I started learning, and I, and I actually picked up, just did a couple free weddings, and that was family weddings. Um, did my brother's engagement video, his wedding video, and learned to incorporate music that already existed at the time because I didn't want to put our hard rock, heavy, scream, screaming Deftones music <laughs> in there. I don't think it went properly, but basically we, we, uh, I, I had this whole idea to kind of, instead of trying to perfect the craft through the generalization of education first and then application. I wanted to learn through application, fail, and then learn what I did wrong, or maybe recertify that I was doing it right. And then I ended up coming up to Phoenix, uh, moved up here in 2001, and lived in northern Phoenix, and uh, applied right away for the Conservatory of Recording Arts and Sciences. So I got accepted, and I actually attended in 2003 and four, and that finished up. And it was a great experience, but it led me into the idea of understanding business. That was my favorite class. You know, everybody loved the big consoles. Everybody loves, you know, the, the idea of being able to record music and be rock stars or be great engineers. And I did too. Um, but my favorite class, ironically, was business class. And uh, after having, you know, presented my, if you will, they did like a senior type project where you would finalize a class. With your big presentation, I, I did this thing called the one-man band, and I think that kind of stayed true throughout my career, both in Soul Pilot, uh, the Samus Theory before that. Um, that stayed true when I was working, you know, I, I started working different types of jobs. I started off as a bellman, 
they, they, <laughs> the nice way to say bellboy, <laughs> and then, uh, you know, transferred over and, and started doing stuff at the airport. I was a ramp agent for, you know, quite some time, and then that company actually merged later on, but before they merged with, uh, <clears throat> it was U.S. Airways at the time, before they merged, uh, it was a, a section of Mesa Airlines. Uh, they weren't bankrupt, so I I started noticing that oh man this is this is way like I I got here with Gatorade and water and now I have to ask for water, and I'm marshaling the aircrafts in I'm getting the the quick check luggage in I gotta hurry up you know then I gotta go and fill up the next plane and we have one ramp agent per gate like that's ridiculous that highly that's, ineffective yeah. and unsafe according to what I I had learned you know so. Yeah, it was kind of stressful, and then I, I left that job. I go and during this whole time, I had already started this thing called Airliner Records, where <clears throat> my ideas was start think big and try to get to the point where I can have an independent record label. So I was engineering artists all over Phoenix that would come to my location at the time, which basically I creatively made my apartment look as if it was a studio, and they would walk in and forget that they were apartment and then walk out and be like, damn. And I'd love that because if you could bring someone into an environment and not have to pay the overhead or charge the overhead for them to justify upcharging, then all of a sudden you have a, a niche. It's not about your location and how, oh my God, it's so beautiful. I have such a great facility and I'm going broke. It's more about I'm actually creating, helping them create their art and they forget completely where they are. They forget absolutely, uh, you know, during the process that we're actually in an apartment complex and they can't be real loud because <laughs> there was, you know, there could have been complaints. I got really fortunate. I always talked to my neighbors always beforehand. And uh, so I built relationships based on networking. And that got me from that to ending up meeting more and more people in the industry over the years. And then I ended up meeting a guy named Lance Reeder. And uh, he owned, he owns still to this day, a company that was started and founded in his garage called Crank Golf. And so he's a lot like me in so many ways. And we kind of went through this whole, you know, whole, like we were so similar in two different industries. And he hired me um, because I used to uh, show, give lessons on how to build basic websites. And my brother helped me always. He has a degree in computer sciences from ASU, so he was always kind of like, tech support, I can't figure this one out <laughs> on my own, and I don't have the degree, so, you know, but at some point I stopped calling, you know, my brother at least, and I had the answers that most people would need to get, you know, something done, and so Lance hired me uh, on to crank eventually, but at first it was, can you come teach my guys how to build websites? I knew that was a long shot, but I wanted to try and see if I could get something through there. Yeah. And he ended up hiring me as their lead web developer for the whole company. So did that for three years or so, four years. And uh, meanwhile, I, the whole time, I didn't mention from 2005 or 6-ish to 2011-ish, I was, had another job at the, in the back of everything. Uh, it was celebrity theater. So I started off as a stagehand. I would do, uh, you know, video director. I started off with the cameras first, and then they let me do some video directing. And then I ended up being stage manager for quite some time. So all of those things led with the bands, with the learning, with the process uh, of me kind of defining what it is that I wanted to give as my main focus if it was my major out of college, for example. And it's kind of like, uh, you know, you have your pure breed uh, <laughs> and then you have your mix. 
mutts. <laughs> I am the creative mutt. And that gave me the ability to kind of have a lot of different backgrounds and kind of bring them up over the years at a pace that I believe was consistent and beneficial for me in the long run, but I could never really have seen it unless I had started my own business. So that's where that ended up. That's awesome. Now, I want to kind of jump around in time a little bit because a couple of things you were talking about struck me. Um, first off, going back to when you uh, said you started off doing some family weddings and stuff like that. Right. Um, I mean, how did you I guess, convince people to, to let you jump in at that that point in your experience level? I mean, was that, I know you said it was family stuff, but... You know, it's wedding, it's a big day and stuff. you, you got to put a lot of trust into that. Was there ever a struggle or did you have to kind of bullshit your way to that? I wouldn't say I bullshit my way into it. I think the, the main thing was my brother had an engagement party. And I realized this is a huge opportunity to prove to myself and to them that I could actually do something. And prior to this, I had done nothing with video. So uh, all my life I had always kind of did this whole piggy banking, uh, piggy bank thing, and throwing stuff in there, save, 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 and uh, and just wait till I had a reason. It was like an investment with no purpose yet. It was a savings, what we call a savings now, right? Older, but at that time I really didn't understand that yet. And my whole thing was there was going to come a point in time where I need to like invest in something that's going to give me that next step that I don't have right now. When it ended up being my first uh, video camera. And we're talking mini DV. wasn't anything spectacular. It's what I could afford at the time. But I made that, uh, they gave me fair notice, and, and I said, hey, let me do a video for it. And they said, sure. And I made it, burnt it on some CDs, and, and, and did a job that made people cry, to be honest with you. I mean, I poured hours and hours into the process, and I think I was editing on Sony Vegas at the time. I don't even know, because that program is foreign to me at this point. But uh, that was a long time ago. Huh? You know, it was Pinnacle. Pinnacle Studio. That's what I edited on. Whoa. Okay. And uh, sorry, this is not something I talk about every day. And so that whole, that whole thing ended up being something that kind of jump-started the trust, if you will. And his wedding was then scheduled, and they did that whole process. And after they saw that video, they, they didn't want to spend, you know, $3,000 where they could or maybe even more at the time. I really don't even know what they were charging because I wasn't in the industry at that time competitively um, when they could have me for free. You know, so I rocked it, did my whole thing, uh, found out with the, you know, the coordinator and found out where, where to be at the church, how to be, how to do this. I got close. I got involved. I got, uh, I got all the cool stuff that you would want and I think in, in most weddings. Um, and they absolutely loved it, you know? And, and I think it was one of those moments where I realized that if you have a passion for what you really wanna do, regardless of what it is, you just go for it. And if you question yourself, then you're already starting off on the wrong foot. But if you start to, instead of question yourself, invest in your own ideas and invest in your, in your time, whatever that might be, um, invest in some gear, it doesn't have to be the best gear, and get out there and not only convince yourself but convince others of what it is you're capable of doing that's the first step that's awesome. so curious though on the on the flip side of that passion um you know you seem like from that story you're like the epitome of paying your dues like what everybody always says is like you got to pay your dues got to work your way up the ladder on your own um so i mean how do you as somebody who is passionate somebody who knows that they want to do something with this how do you i guess find that patience to know that like i can't get ahead of myself i gotta keep on the grind for a little while longer. 
Like, what, what was your thought process when it comes to something like that? Well, I, I'm certainly not going to say there weren't moments where I thought, oh, man, you know, it would, great to be, it would be awesome to have this camera now. <laughs> but I think the, it was gratitude that pulled me through the questionable process of, you know, inpatient uh, circumstances where I want to jump from here to there. But I actually, I have to go step by step by step by step. Maybe some of that in my blood was the Hispanic that I have in me. In Spanish, you say poquito a poco. And so it's the same things. The translation is step by step. And without that fundamental core value, I don't think you'll really appreciate and be able to have a broad enough ability to look at things objectively and say, hey, gratitude of all the things that I've accomplished so far is pretty damn good. I mean, it's, it's fulfilling. I'm satisfied with what I've done. And if you don't feel that about what you've done, then you're probably not getting positive reinforcements or you're probably shooting way too high to start right now. You know, there's a starting point. And I saw, I mean, I got in trouble when I was a kid once. I went to community service, believe it or not. And, it, you know, it's not a highlight in my life, but it was a damn funny one. <laughs> and uh, I ended up having to do community service at the uh, Nogales Library. And I was working with the janitor, and he, and one night he said, uh, what, what are your goals in life? And I said, well, I would like to, uh, you know, succeed in music and maybe possibly video and, or start my own company. And he says, why don't you shoot for the moon instead of the stars? It's more tangible. And I said, easy for... <laughs> and I said, look, with all due respect, how can I take your advice? And that was probably one of the moments that I realized hold back what you have to say sometimes <laughs> and use it for your own benefit, just knowing it. Mm -hmm. But he actually re responded in a way that he said, well, and it was in Spanish, mm -hmm. and he said, well, you have a good point, you know? Tienes mm razón, -hmm. you know? And I think that was a moment where him and I kind of clicked on a different level. He realized that I wasn't just some punk kid and maybe he wasn't, you know, an overachiever. Um, but we clicked and, and had good conversations after that. That was also really interesting. And to see the dynamic change when you're just so bluntly honest to someone telling you don't go for your dreams. You know, because I, I don't like taking no for an answer if I am full steam ahead. You know what I mean? That's fair. So that was my, my reaction and it got me a lot more uh, honesty than it would have just bullshitting my way through it and saying, yeah, you know what, I agree and mm -hmm. not being honest. I think that would have been probably the bad thing to do, to be honest with you. Uh, but yeah, I mean, anybody can can feel desperate in their circumstances, um, but they have to take responsibility of those circumstances and and have the gratitude of appreciating to be uh, the appreciation to be able to be in that circumstance. Because not even everybody has to worry about that circumstance. There's a lot of stuff before that circumstance that you could have to be worrying about, but you're not. You're actually worried about something a lot more constructive, and I think that's a great place to be. So if you use that, hone in on it and use that as your focal point to drive you, it, then it becomes drive, ambition, um, and, and more importantly, you know, the, the, the consistency of communication throughout the process, the integrity and delivery. And if you can kind of get all of those things together in, in a sense that people can start to relate to you in many different ways, then you're, you're already starting to succeed where that tangible asset may be a camera, but now you're gonna get it through your, your ability to, to do the other things, right? So it's not always the money, it's, it's how you work as an individual that will bring the opportunity 
to then have the fund if you need it, right? Right, yeah, it seems to be kind of a pattern with what you're saying that it, you didn't always necessarily have like the professional level tools or like the top top of the line tools by any stretch of the imagination, but you made it work with what you had. Um, so I'm kind of curious though, um, was there a point where you realized you were focusing more on, um, I guess, production and engineering than developing new material yourself? Like was there, was that a conscious decision to take a side back from maybe your own uh, music and focus on developing others? Yeah, actually, that was a, a huge decision, and, and that actually happened probably around the time that I bought this house. Um, and the reason for that was I had already been a designing website, um, or several websites, but the, particularly for Crank Golf, and it was a great job. I enjoyed it, uh, although it wasn't absolutely 100% what I wanted to do. It took up a lot of my time, too. Web design, development, scripting, code e-commerce you name it it's it's a it's a complicated matter when you have to deal with it in volume and responsibility SSL certificates I mean the whole nine yards being on the phone uh, talking to people about this stuff at IT who haven't necessarily perfected their system back in the day because we're still talking about a time in in the industry of the internet that was still kind of still barely taking Mm -hmm. off online where now you could just kind of go online and there is an e-commerce website (laughs) template built for you and don't worry about it. Do it for you. Want a great website? Sign up for Wix.com. You know, it's all over the place now. And, and I, I love that because it takes the guesswork out of everything as well. Mm-hmm. So if you design websites back then, then just build Wix websites and don't tell them. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, I think going back to that is the trade-off between being the artist and then being by the artist mm-hmm. was probably the decision that came about when I realized that I could be writing music for Soul Pilot, I could keep the band going and we could tour if we wanted again or we could just say, you know what, the music industry right now is probably not the best way to plan on your economical situation for the future. So do we want to continue fishing in the dark right now in an ever-changing MP3 industry? where you have one side of the technical people telling you if you don't have an uh, you know if you don't have a Neumann U87 on your vocals then it's not even worth a vocal and then on the flip side all the people that are listening to MP3s that wouldn't even get the benefit of that quality of recording and you're talking about multiple thousands of dollars tens of thousands of dollars you know just for the equipment and the recording and then to finally have somebody listen to it on a streaming service that degrades the quality of everything that you would naturally hear. So this, is, this could go on for its own conversation, really. But I realized that I didn't want to be trying so hard to perfect uh, something in a craft in the industry that wasn't really, ha- it didn't have a lot of bandwidth, if you will. It, it was kind of bottlenecked at the possibility of the MP3 did change a lot of things for artists. Uh, a lot of people had a wake-up call, and somehow we needed to translate that into other means of uh, survival income, if you will. You know, I had my fair share of jobs during this process, but the one thing that triggered the big change between artists to being by the artist was understanding the limitations, being able to overcome those limitations, knowing how to get your mu- music published, knowing how to get it heard by music executives. You know, I was at hyperactive music fest over in New Mexico when we were on tour we stopped by there for three days conferences with management uh, executives for record labels I got to talk to one-on-one with many many great people that gave me insights 
that otherwise I don't think people consider when they're submitting something to be heard. And, and th those are invaluable uh, pieces of information that kind of fell on my lap, really. It, I didn't expect them, but I was looking forward to learning them. And when I did learn them, it, they didn't really surprise me. It just it, it made it even more clear to me, a lot like going to the conservatory. I already knew how to record. I didn't really need an SSL console or a Neve or a, a Neotech console to really be able to pull off great quality recordings um, just because somebody says they if it's not analog it doesn't sound good well 90 percent of Spotify is not analog so go go however you want with you know you either want to be successful and, and and success to you is analog then yeah I mean an analog <laughs> album or you want to be successful make great music and not have a real big budget to do it but have people actually buy it or download it or then do it your way you know there's no right or wrong way to create art and so that was my way of trying to you know help people understand at least for for people involved with me that you didn't need to go spend ten thousand dollars at a studio to get something to sound great and you know I still have to this day people oh listen to how awesome this sounds I recorded it on this great piece of gear to tape and and I hear the mix and I'm like I never say anything to them but I honestly in the back of my head think man that is that is ten thousand dollars worth of time Sometimes it shocks me, and I've been doing it for so long, I can hear the nuances that, that I just, they don't flatter me, they don't stand out to me, and that's why I can imagine that that particular piece of music or that album never actually went anywhere, is because it doesn't resonate with the human condition, it just resonates on this egotistical attitude of the greatest gear in the world, and I'm a rock star already. If you're a rock star already, then you're never going to make it. You got to be hungry. You got to be willing to work. You got to grind. Sometimes I'll have to scrape from the bottom of the barrel, and at some point the well will never run dry. But you know, it goes to this old saying that that I found: uh, do everything, expect nothing, have it all. I like that. That's, that's a good, succinct way of putting that. That's right. Um, I, I'm curious though, because I mean, last time uh, we met, like you were you were doing some editing work for our mutual friend, and uh, like you were basically telling him, like it, it was a uh, video work, it was film work, and. Um, he was kind of asking about, can we do this, can we do that? And you were basically the, the go-to answer was like, I can do anything, man. <laughs> I can do anything you need. So, I mean, how does access to that level of technology change, like, you creatively? Like, just knowing that you really can do whatever with technology out here. Now, does that change the way you approach things? Of course, because especially when you have, you know, clients that even cross over to the friendship boundary, oftentimes, mm -hmm. most of my clients are still friends now. Mm -hmm. um, but the main thing that, that I think you realize is I have a camera that I would have dreamt of having when I was a kid, or not even a kid because it wasn't even out yet. In 2007, let's say, I, I, I saw the, my brother sent me an email, the prototype of the RED camera. And I'm like, oh man, that is, that is the sexiest thing I've ever seen. And you know, here they come out with this, this camera and it, it changes the industry completely. It, it redefines how to work in the digital world comparable on a, on a format of, to film. And, you know, Doug Breckham, Douglas Breckham, who, you know, you're, we're talking about, yeah. he, he doesn't even, uh, con you know, at first he was like, do you really think it's going to look like a film, though? Because, you know, yeah, I went to film <laughs> school and I know what 35 millimeter looks like. And, and I'm like, just let's try out some shots. And if you don't like it, then... Mm -hmm. You know, we, we can backtrack, but I can definitely dirty it, dirty it up if you want. 
And when you started seeing the footage, you start realizing, okay, we are not limited by film anymore. We're not, the only thing that are limiting us are, are stubborn ideas of what we've been told over the years. But if the story gets tell, told or, and the depth of field is there and all the technology that we have is available to us, then yeah, we can get a drone shot and make it look like, you know, we had a 300-foot crane. Or we, we could track that shot with auto track and have that car absolutely in sync with the drone as it moves and in 4K and then down-res it to 1080 if you want or down-res it to 2K if you want for a theater showing. We're still showing movies at 2K in the theaters and people are so excited about 4K on, on televisions and it's still not a standard, you know? <laughs> so when you're able to have this, you know, 4.5K camera and a 4K drone and things start getting excited and you have a DSLR that shoots in 4K and you have like, you know, all the lenses that I have, you start to realize that that imagination and that point where somebody asks you, can it be done, start to be so narrow to the point where it's like, <laughs> yeah, there's nothing, it can't be done. As long as you have the creative mind and the ability to see it through. So I'm curious, because like when I was in college, I mean, this was... Um, still a few years ago and like things are still not quite at the cusp where they're at now but um, I still knew people who would you know vehemently be against like auto settings of any sort and, and anything like that and, and more and more now it seems that people are like okay with it they're okay with doing like kind of preset um, tracks of everything whatever look at video audio whatever you want to say but more and more they're okay with kind of factory settings factory filters on Instagram I mean like whatever um, but uh do you feel like that's ever getting to a point of, of frustration for you? Is it something that you ever like kind of find yourself up against of like, I can do better than the auto, that type of thing? Or is that kind of an, an ego thing? Or? I don't think it's ever an ego thing. Yeah. I think that anybody who actually knows photography or cinematography <laughs> and puts the camera on auto after years of study and practice feel that that shot is not going to be half as creative or storytelling as it would be if it was fully manual. You know, fully manual gives you the opportunity to understand and more importantly to, to convey the message in the scene or whatever the picture, uh, if it was meant to be shot at a certain shutter speed to give it that that look. Let's say Saving Private Ryan, 250 frames, or uh, 250 uh, on their shutter speed. I mean, if you think about that was an accident that the cinematographer didn't even, they didn't know the first couple days, and when they found out, they had to keep shooting it, but they gave it that really uh, jittery yeah. feel. That, I think, made the movie, right? But it was a manual setting that they had to get right the first time, and they messed it up, so they kept it. I mean, that makes sense. <laughs> but if you didn't know how to use your shutter speed, if you didn't know how to use your aperture, if you didn't know how to properly white balance, and, and you didn't really understand how depth of field really works or how to use it to the advantage to flatter a, a, a scene or a, a location or a person, the background, the bokeh, the colors, the, the way they bleed into each other. I think you'll never appreciate what your craft really is because auto is going to take all those things and think for you. And then, and I challenge anybody hearing this, Put your camera on auto, take a picture, put something in focus, and take that picture, and then go full manual and try to get the same exposure on your histogram. Try to get the shutter speed relatively without shake so you could see it good, and probably easier during the day. 
and try to, if not, use a tripod and try to emulate that look, but get a very absolutely open, shallow depth of field and see which one you like better. Do you like auto or do you like manual? I get so, no matter how good the technology gets, that human touch just can't be replicated. <laughs> I don't think it does because that's what gives the creative portion of the artist the ability to have their tools 100%. Otherwise, we're all artists in a sense. <laughs> and, and, and I'm cool with that. Yeah. But I think that we'll definitely notice as an audience who actually takes the time and who doesn't. Like now, since we brought up Doug a little bit too, I'm really curious, um, just as your role specifically in cinematography, or I mean, I guess on the audio engineering side of things too, you are kind of translating someone else's vision to a certain point. Like they'll come to you with something they want and it's your job to make that happen. How, how do you go about that relationship? How do you approach that at a certain point? Do you feel like you ever know better and you have to hold your tongue? Or? I think there's always a point of respect that you have to be willing to either A, hold back, or B, compromise and just say something. Um, you know, some, some clients uh, of mine and, and friends of mine have come to me on a numerous, numerous occasions and, and been limited by their own imagination because sometimes they feel that it has to be done some particular type of way. Otherwise, it doesn't make sense. And but then the way they express it to me is because well we can't do it like this because we we can't like that would be hard wouldn't it and I'm like actually it wouldn't like if we were to even in I don't want to wear a shirt that says all fix it in post or anything but <laughs> I mean if we were to take the shot clean slate and then just think about it like with the intention of you know maybe not rotoscoping but masking out the background into some areas and putting in a new sky. Do we really have to worry about the fact that it's cloudy that day? Uh, would the sunlight not, I mean, the sunlight would kind of make the shots in most scenarios too harsh. We'd have to flag that off so it didn't seem, you know, too, too harsh on our actors or there's, we, don't, we don't want them looking into the sun because they're going to squint. So how do you take care of that? Well, a little bit of color correction, replace the sky, and there you go. There's a lot of tools where the imagination of someone who actually understands how to use these tools could convey the message to someone who maybe was taught theoretically based on you know a, a different perspective and there's nothing wrong with each one but the beauty of it is when you see you know someone like Doug with such an amazing background in film uh, and go, actually gone to film school come and then and then talk to me about stuff and then I you know throw stuff at him and then we get excited and we even forget we're actually in a meeting sometimes because we start thinking oh man this is gonna be good oh that'd be awesome. oh but what's actually what can we actually accomplish in like three hours with an actress that doesn't want to actually be there you know for the whole day yeah. right because she's got a family she's got kids and it's probably not the best idea to assume that she's going to be there the whole day uh and and you know that that's reality so what can we do to compromise that that scenario uh down to where we're not compromising the the story we're not compromising uh the quality of the production but we're compromising our excitement to you know a list of what what's important what's not so important what would be really cool but maybe not we don't have time for right that makes sense that makes sense uh and i'm interested in something that kind of stood out with what you were saying with uh just somebody who understands the tools is kind of how you described you know the director in this instance uh, i spoke with another filmmaker a while back and a friend of mine who, who does it who um he said when it comes to him working with his dps that he 
doesn't uh, like even pretend to like have a technical knowledge of any kind. Like he comes in exclusively from like the art artistic side, the aesthetic side, mm -hmm. and tries to just communicate in that way to the DP. Do you feel like that's how you'd prefer it, or do you feel like that gives you more creative freedom, I guess, to do what you want to do, or is that frustrating? I I think that. <clears throat> That particular circumstance, if a director, let's say, would be a lot more, uh, you know, technical, mm -hmm. which, which to a degree is maybe 50-50 in reality. Mm -hmm. There's going to be your Spielbergs and then there's going to be your, you know, I don't know. It, 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 but especially in Phoenix, it's a lot different. You know, usually if you're, you have a director, uh, they're not going to be doing the cinematography at the same time. Right. Like, I did a short film recently for the 48-hour film challenge. It was called Grace. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we got best music. <laughs> I thought that was funny. <laughs> because for me, I mean, you think about it. I just told you kind of the story of how music was so prominent in my whole life. And, you know, later down the line, I started really getting into the, the technical side of really filmmaking and, and, and getting into that. And so it was, it was almost like... Uh, the same old story, the same old song for me, if you will, that went back to like, um, I already know what I know. Mm -hmm. So it was like that reaffirmation, like, yeah, I know I got that down. Okay, but next time let's shoot a little bit stronger for maybe the writing that I did or maybe the dialogue. But yeah, if you have a director that has the creative input, mm -hmm. it's, it's empowering to an extent, mm -hmm. right? As long as they leave it open-ended for you to make the ultimate decision because that is your job. Sure. But if they see that you're maybe not doing it okay and they then they want to come in and really fine-tune it then I'm all for it uh, that's never really happened in my case because I'm super technical you know and I don't look it through the lens uh, in just a technical way I think about the vision I read the script I know the lines but I also try not to get too involved in the dialogue where I'm thinking about the big picture. What is the overall emotional aesthetic of this whole piece mm -hmm. right and how do I can convey that through the lens where everybody's going to interpret on the other side. And that is the most important role in many cases that is highly overlooked in the industry. Um, most importantly in Phoenix, what I found, people think they could get an AS7 and just film everything they want and there's a film and that's the problem or like, you know, a 5D Mark II still on the market and, and there's the film and no, there's no aesthetically pleasing imagery in there. There's no, you know, real good motion and there's no storytelling through the lens. Whereas if you have a director, on the flip side of your question, who has no idea about technicalities, then it's absolutely up to your creative freedom, but it's sometimes real hard to understand what they really, really want. And then you're limited by what their knowledge is. Yeah. So it's kind of, on both sides, there's good and bad. Yeah. I think a good mix of the two, uh, a great director would be able to you know, facilitate just enough, but then back off and let you do your job. Because if it's too much, then it gets irritating. And if it's too little, then it's, you're trying to guess things. And at some point, you feel like you're directing. Right. Because they're already blocking the next scene, mm -hmm. and you're still in the middle of shooting the last one. And you're like trying to keep the pace of things going, but they put some, like for me personally, sometimes they leave a little way too much trust, and here I am shooting three or four scenes on my own, and the director's not even it's there. It's not your job, yeah. Yeah, and so I believe that they're, if you're gonna bring me on a team, or you're gonna have a team, Everybody works together scene by scene by scene and tries not to get ahead of themselves, you know. Uh, I've seen productions and I've been on productions where, uh, you know, some directors will get way ahead and, and they're just not in that moment. And their direction, they're trying to tell their actors three, shots, three shot lists down the line, 
you know, three scenes down the line, and we just finished blocking this one. So now their actors are not in that moment, and in Hollywood that would never fought and that would never that would never play because we're gonna we're gonna plan block do the whole thing practice maybe rehearsal if there is here in Phoenix and then shoot. And in Hollywood it's just boom 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 boom. But we ain't got we have a budget, mm-hmm. right? And and that we got A list actors, B list actors. There's no time for shenanigans, yeah. right? We, you and I kind of got a feeling of what that might feel like down here in Phoenix, ironically. But that was still a, a rare situation. Right. Um, so timing is of the essence. So I think 50-50, that good balance with a good director, really gives the, the incentive to the whole project instead of holding anything back at any particular side of things. I like that. Now, I mean, since you've mentioned it a couple of times, I'm curious about the Phoenix market as far as somebody in your position. So looking at your website for the Project Revolution, um, I mean, you advertise a myriad of services. Obviously, you do commercial and business, all this type of stuff. Um, so when it comes to finding those creative outlets, um, how do you... How do you go about it? Are you just waiting for somebody to contact you? Are you actively pursuing stuff like 48-hour film challenges to, to hook up with people? How, how do you do it? Well, there's two ways. One, I, I never wait for someone to knock on my door. I think that's always going to be the wrong method. Um, there's always ways of, of you know posting online. There, you, you go even, even if you want to go to Craigslist, people will ask you questions. It's up to you to take those jobs or not. Generally, if you get the call and they're going to they're gonna sound kind of weird, Maybe you're booked for the next six months, you know? But if they sound legit and they sound like the number they're talking about, they feel like they found a gold mine, then there you go, and you're good with it. Um, but on the flip side of that, uh, I do a lot of marketing on Google. I do a lot of marketing um, through my website on their search engine optimization, all that good stuff. Um, and then, of course, you get involved. I mean, I did the 24-hour film challenge. I signed up, what, a week and a half before it actually went on, which was, I think, the day that the, the discount... <laughs> expired which was kind of funny because the next day I'd been like 20 bucks more or something to, to, so I was like okay well this, I guess it's meant to be boom I just put it in and a week before that I went um, to the film Phoenix uh, it was the meetup the, uh, it was a monthly meet mm-hmm. and you can find that IFP Phoenix and uh, independent filmmakers of Phoenix and they have monthly meetups at Arizona Studios and so you can network there. I networked there. I showed some. I showed a video that I had, well, a, a short commercial that I had done. Mm-hmm. It was actually a long commercial, to be honest with you. And, and I got it criticized. And I asked them to tear it apart. I said, just do, yeah. do your worst on this one, because I want to know. And you know, the only real criticisms that I had would make it shorter. Well, I know, but I, my idea was to make it for uh, an example and to really get it out there, because it was uh, for Indian motorcycle. And it was for marketing for Indian Motorcycle to be able to push this on social media. Mm-hmm. And sometimes if it's really well shot and it starts to build with the music that I wrote for it too, people will watch it till the end. Yeah, but they were like, it should only be a minute maximum. And I'm like, well, good point. Let's do that next time. Maybe I'll recut it and see what happens. Hadn't had the time yet, but I'll probably do it. And then I also, you know, got a lot of feedback. You know, they're like, what are you trying to be, J.J. Abrams? Look at those flares on the motorcycle headlight. Like, it's a little bit much, dude. I'm like, yeah, I should probably lay back off that. Like, yeah, no, but for constructive reasons, you're showing the bike, right? So, you know, I, I admitted open heart, you know, just flat out, yeah, I agree. I get really taken away with this creative process that even I can mix, miss those important little details. And it made a lot of sense. And I, my willingness to agree and cooperate with the constructive fi- criticism, I handed out like six business cards with people who came up to me after that. Everybody else walked out. Nobody else said anything to each other, you know? And so I was like, I wonder why nobody wants to network at these things, you know? But then, boom, six people. And 
and I was just talking. It was great. So I handed out cards and, you know, got a lot of hits on our website within the next week. And then we were at the $48 Film Challenge and, uh, and got to see that on the big screen. And that was exciting and fun. And then I met more people, you know. And then just recently, uh, I was hired onto a, the, the month breakout film challenge. Nice. So a couple weeks ago, uh, what, October... First and oh yeah, so September and October, the last the last day of September and October, first day of October. Um, we were filming uh, over in Phoenix and in Scottsdale, and we shot basically we it was a month long challenge for the twenty first to the twenty first of this month. But uh, is this for a pause? Was was that a previous? Yes, challenge? pause. Yeah. Yes. How'd you know about that? Just looking on my. <laughs> oh, okay, cool. <laughs> I'm telling you, man, stuff gets out there. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, no. Uh, we so they the Ryan Glosser is the director. He uh, he contacted me, and you know said some really cool, flattering things over the phone about Grace and and how he saw it in the theater, and said, "Would you like to be a part of our team for the Breakout Challenge?" This is the idea. I said before I said anything, I said, "What's the story?" Yeah. You know. Uh, because I would really like to know what I'd be shooting. Otherwise, I'm not going to, if I'm going to think it's kind of dumb, maybe I'm not your best guy. You know, I have to believe in the art that I'm going to be assisting, right? So, and you know, I, I didn't say it. if it's going to be dumb. I wasn't an idiot, <laughs> but that's just me in my head, right? Yeah. So I said, yeah, what's the story? And, and he told me, and he sounded really nervous off the bat, but then he kind of started really kind of chilling out after I laughed with him for a little bit. And then I said, yeah, you know what, let's do it. And he's like, really? I didn't. I don't know if he didn't expect me to say yes, but it was fun. So I said yeah, and next thing you know, we were we were scheduling the shoot dates. Went out there, did the whole thing. I think it's going to be really cool. I yeah. think everybody should go. It's on November eighth. The showing in Harkins uh, Theater fourteen one hundred one, off of one hundred one in Scottsdale Road, basically where the film festival is, and uh, it's going to be really exciting because we already have. 40-some people going, I think. Oh, nice. Just just from people that we work with. And we had a full awesome. cast, a full crew, yeah. the whole nine yards. It was a blast. Uh, one of my top three favorite film film crew and cast of, you know, ever so far. And these people are so passionate about what they do. It was exciting. And we were on Facebook group, the whole th all of us. So all night and day, you just hear ding, ding, ding. Like everybody's talking, <laughs> new images, sharing stuff. And Ryan and I are both like, we should probably tell them to like, not share so much information on on the online you know and but at some point we didn't care so it, it's a lot of fun been on skype calls mm -hmm. and uh what's the other one that he showed me another program that we could share uh screens or whatever anyways it's like yeah. a gaming thing but uh, oh. we've been on skype and uh and working closely with the editor kind of finalizing thing i think it's supposed to be done tonight which i have to go check in a little while with them but uh, yeah, I think it, it's it turned out to be really really great project, and again I'll be out there um, networking with some more people, and that just keeps rolling and flowing, right? And so that's kind of what I would recommend for anybody in Phoenix is you've heard Quentin Tarantino say, it, you've heard you know other filmmakers say it. It's like you know what you want to do, so go do it. Get out there and do it. And if you have to do one, two, or three for free then do it. And then, and then once you recognize your value, it's not free anymore because so will someone else. But you need to have an example in order to have something tangible for somebody to say, okay, this is why we're investing in this, right? So, 
yeah, I think that the, it, it goes back to the, the fundamentals of all great people that have ever done it in history that it will repeat itself. Get out there and show people what you're capable of doing and in the, in the, in the midst of it all, somewhere in there, have a little bit of time to say, and show myself what I'm capable of. And then you're really going to start to resonate with the industry because if you believe in yourself, then you're going to really start to show people and have them feel the same thing that you feel. You can't, there's no faking this. Really, uh, that's a good time to kind of wrap up and ask the last couple of questions I like to ask. Um, so you've dropped a couple of names as you've gone through, but does anybody in town doesn't have to be within your same discipline, but just any other artists around the Phoenix area you want to give some recognition to? Shout out to. I mean, sure, there would always be yeah. uh, you know great artists out there. I think. Um, oh, that's a good one, Sean Donnelly. Uh, I've been doing some uh, his album, so. Huh. I think it's going to be a really good one. I think he deserves a little bit of recognition once it comes out. He's always been kind of, he even goes back to my old days where we were down in, in Nogales in Rio Rico, Arizona, and uh, he was always in one of those bands that came up just after mine and, uh, you know, play some shows. I, you know, I'd go meet up with them and take over the mic and play some Deftone songs and then just hang out and drink beer or whatever. But, you know, he's come such a long way because he has a great job. He's getting married. He's got a house, got a car. He's living the life. But then he's like, I called him up and I called it. A t it was a tequila promise. I, my wife got me a little bit of tequila, which I love, by the way. Yeah. Uh, she's awesome. And she's like, you've been working way too hard here. Have this. And I did, and then I had another one, and then I had another one, and then I was like, oh, shit. And the next thing you know, I called Sean, and I'm like, what are you doing not like recording music anymore? And so now I'm recording his album, because I resonated his soul back into music somehow, and it sounds so differently interesting. So I'm, I'm you know, look out for that. I will say, like, off of that, you, you'd be amazed, like, what kind of artistic inspiration can, can hit somebody once you remind them of what they're capable of. Yeah. I think that's such a powerful thing. That's so cool. Well, the funny yeah. story is, I didn't even remember talking to him. And he called Shit. me the next day. He's like, are we still on? I'm like, for what? <laughs> and that's why I put hashtag tequila promises on that whole post on Facebook and Instagram. Mm -hmm. Because I promised to record one song to convince him of how good it could be. Because I wanted him to get back. I was just, I didn't need to. I just wanted to get, get yeah, him back dude. into it. And he did, and now he can't get enough. So, I mean, we're already scheduled for next Thursday, too. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, anybody else off the top of your head you want to throw out there? Man, anybody, who's, anybody who's good at anything needs recognition, so put yourself <laughs> out there. Come on. And if I, don't know, yeah. if I don't know about you and you're out there and you're listening to this, you know, info at theprojectrevolution.com. I'd love to see something good, hear something good. I'm always about finding new ways of art and people that are out there doing something. So I'll transition for that. So the next thing I'd like to ask is any personal projects you want to plug, websites, theprojectrevolution.com, obviously. Yeah, yeah theprojectrevolution.com, my baby, uh, <laughs> created that. So come check it out. Um, other than that, uh, we have a few things in the works that I can't talk about yet, but we'll, we'll get there. Um, you can always follow me on Instagram as well. It's the pro hashtag theprojectrevolution or at theprojectrevolution. Um, other than that. When is pause going up? Pause goes up on November 8th in Scottsdale, Arizona at the uh, 10, uh, Scotts, uh, Harkins Theater. So it's the Harkins 14101, uh, right off the 101 Scottsdale Road. So that'll go on at 7 p.m. On, on November 8th. And if you uh, get a chance when you hear this, I think uh, mm -hmm. you mentioned that you might be putting this up a little later uh, from today, is you know get on uh, the tickets we have actually on our website uh, or actually on our Instagram where you can link to that and get tickets also on our Facebook at the Project Revolution um, 
there's actually a link that shows the poster, and right, right. above the poster, you can click to buy the tickets because they will sell out. We've been told already from the guys over that that actually you know do this whole thing, and they're like, holy moly, like they they had to get the bigger theater. So that's excellent. I love that. All right, um, last thing I like to ask, um, and I kind of want to do a two pronged for you since we have a little bit of time. Um, so I always like to ask for a piece of advice that you'd like to, to pass on to somebody who's looking to, to go into your role. First, first thing I kind of want to ask, though, just with all the young filmmakers and aspiring filmmakers, I should say, here in town, I, just like you were saying, a lot of people feel like they have these ideas and they want to go implement them, but they just don't know how. What advice would you recommend to somebody who maybe is looking to approach somebody like you, looking to make those, those first steps to creating a movie? Right. I mean, if, yeah. if, if it's about approaching someone like me, just yeah. do it. What are you waiting for? Um, <laughs> you have nothing to lose. And worst thing that you get is like no reply or no. Uh, with me, generally, you wouldn't get a no reply. Um, you get like, holy crap, my, my schedule is like literally insane. And I'm not just lying. Uh, <laughs> but uh, in the next step is, you know, if you do contact somebody, you want to work with them, you know, don't just write. Don't, don't just write something with horrible grammar and, and have no point. Like, really take the time, read it like 10 times before you send it. Because it will translate. You know, just like you would move your camera or, or, you know, sing a song. You know, an email is equally as important in this industry to really give that, that message. Or if you need to call, you know, call. Uh, whatever it takes. But I, I, I think approaching uh, anybody like me, that would be the first step. The other one is approaching the industry in general. You know, if you're going to get into this and your heart's there and you're going to put in the work, then you're already pretty much 30% on the right track. The other, the other part is to get to 50% and that's going to begin to start to do it. And then you still have to realize you're barely at 50%. So don't get ahead of yourself. <laughs> and once you start to get some more flow and, and get moving in the, in the right direction, you're going to start to feel that sense of achievement and that you got things done. And once you got a few projects under your belt, then I think, you know, you start realizing that to become a black belt, it takes study and practice, right? It doesn't just come to you and they don't just give it to you. You got to work for it. You got to earn it. And don't feel entitled to just because you have a camera and you're smart and you're creative that you're just going to be, you're going to earn it. It takes a lot of work networking. And even then, you still got to work for it. You always got to work for it. I love that. All right. Daniel, appreciate your time, man. Thank you so much. Yeah, very much, man. Thanks for having me. Yep. Special thanks to Nick Machete for writing our theme music and Taylor Machete for all of her support. If you are enjoying the podcast so far, don't forget to follow us and leave nice ratings on Facebook, Twitter, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Pinecast.co. And if you or someone you know is pursuing something artistic in the Phoenix area and you'd like to be on the podcast, write to me at starvingartistsphx at gmail.com.